And that was a clip from Absence, music composed by one of our guests today, Terence Blanchard. Welcome to Words and Pictures, the show about the narrative arts. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and I'm joined today by two celebrated composers. Terence Blanchard will be joining us later in the show. Terence is a two-time Academy Award nominee and a seven-time Grammy winner. He's played with Lionel Hampton as well as Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, worked with Spike Lee since the 1980s, and composed two operas, Champion and Fire Shut Up in My Bones. His current project in collaboration with the E-Collective Band and the Turtle Island String Quartet is called Absence. Right now we're joined by a conductor, singer, and composer who is currently serving as interim music director and artistic advisor for Portland Opera. Damien Jeter, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Good to be here. So, Damien, tell us about Absence, this performance that's taking place at Portland Opera. Sure. So it's the music of Terrence Blanchard, as you mentioned before, who is uh, all of the things that you mentioned before. And the audience will hear a little bit of everything that he has to offer, including jazz, including some music from his movie soundtracks, as well as his second opera, Fire Shut Up In My Bones. Yeah, let's talk about this opera, Fire Shut Up In My Bones. This was the first production that the Metropolitan Opera put on when they opened back up after the pandemic. It was also the Met's first opera composed by an African-American composer. And Terrence said at the premiere, I don't want to be a token, but a turnkey. That's a, that's an important thing to hear. Oh, absolutely. And the, the, another thing that I heard Terrence say is that, you know, he may be the first Black composer to have a piece produced at the Met, but he's not the first qualified when the piece was premiered in 2022 or 2021, I can't remember now. It was historic. I was there opening night and it, the buzz and the energy around it was something that I don't think I'll ever forget. But to think that it took all of those years since the Met's existence to produce an opera by a Black composer is, is, is sad, but I'm glad that the table has turned. And, you know, he's opened up the door for many others to come through. And we should absolutely uh, mention that you've celebrated a number of firsts. You're quite a bit younger than Terrence, but uh, one of your firsts was becoming the first Black conductor in the history of the Fort Worth Opera. Yeah, I got the opportunity to conduct my Requiem, um, an African-American Requiem back in January, and I didn't know that I was the first Black conductor, but it's sort of it's sort of cool to know. <laughs> also sad, but here we are. <laughs> And one of the things that I know you and Terrence have been really passionate about is expanding the audience that comes to opera performances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And something that I've been saying for years, and I'm not the only one, so I'm not unique in this way, is that when you write pieces that reflect the audience, that reflect the country, that reflects the place where people live, where the piece is being produced, you will get those same folks from those demographics who will come to the opera. I have seen it time and time again. I've experienced it. I've sat in the audience for many of these pieces. And it is great to know that the Met, we keep talking about the Met, but other companies too have sort of figured this out and are doing things about it. I was having this conversation with some musicians today, actually, Nancy Ives, principal cellist for the Oregon Symphony, and I, she and I were talking today, and it's like, yeah, we're we're finally at the moment where people are realizing that they want to see themselves represented on the stage. But, the, you know, this is not 
uncommon for opera. This is sort of the cycle of opera in that, you know, when opera first came around, it was all about mythological stories and things like this. And then people wanted to see themselves on the stage. And so then you start to get into like the Duponte operas and things like this. And then people want to see real life representation on stage. And so now you get into the Verismo opera and then, you know, the list goes on. So this is just a this is just another thing in a cycle of the life of opera, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, audiences often come to opera later in life. And I've often thought that it's because it takes a few years to process and appreciate all the wild and dramatic moments that uh, that life throws at you. Uh, when you're in your 20s, you know, all your bad decisions are still front and center, staring you in your face. Later on, you can kind of put a little perspective in that. And as they say, Bad decisions make good drama. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. <laughs> but I came to opera in my 20s, which, to, yeah, I guess that's not late. Um, and actually, my first opera was Electra by Strauss. <laughs> so that's quite the first opera. And, you know, I left the theater going, what the heck was that? But I love Electra. And I'm, I'm so steeped in opera, like I'm writing two operas now and, you know, I've had the opportunity to sing an opera. So it's it's very second nature to me now. And, you know, stories, there's so many stories out there that can be told that are operatic. Well, I want to go back to this event that's coming up, Absence at Portland Opera, a special event. And you're going to be conducting, Damien Jeter, conducting this really fulsome event here. It's got a lot of elements, the collective are there, the Turtle Island Quartet, guest soloists, soprano Karen Slack. She's the uh, co-artistic advisor with you and baritone Will Liverman, who was last seen with the Portland Opera as Marcel in La Boheme in uh, 2017. I can vouch for that production. I was in that production. I was Al Chindoro. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, it had an incredible lineup, uh, you among them, and amazing sets, may I just say. Yeah, that was a fun production. I think that was the first time I met Will, I think. But I've known Karen for over 10 years at this point, and uh, she's a good friend of mine, one of my closest friends, actually. So this is going to be fun, it's making music with your friends. So Fire Shut Up in My Bones is a big part of this production. It's an opera that uh, was adapted from the memoir by Charles M. Blow. The book takes its title from a passage from a book of Jeremiah. And um, it's interesting the way that um, Charles Blow connected with Terrence. Both grew up in Louisiana. Both had a lot of music in their lives. Both took up piano at an early age. And both felt really alienated from the culture they grew up in, especially the kids around them. Yeah, a lot of things in common. I can't speak to how it all came to be. Uh, you'd have to ask Terrence all, all of that. But I, I think that it's a collaborative process putting on opera. And I can't imagine what it's like to, to write a story about a person who's alive right now. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure, I would think. But um, I think that Charles was pleased with the piece. I think on some level, you have to be able to put your ego aside and say, at some point, this becomes a character, even if it's based on a memoir, uh, this becomes a character. And I suppose it's the same for you when you're composing. You've got musicians who are going to take things in a different direction, and maybe that direction is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we're all characters, right? <laughs> and that's 
opera called Life. <laughs> We're all characters in some way. And you know, I used to watch this, uh, I can't remember the name of the reporter, but he used to have a show called This Is Your Life. Not This Is Your Life, but he would go through the phone book and like put his finger down on somebody's name. That was when phone books existed. He would put his finger on somebody's name and he would call that person and he would say, hey, I want to do a story about your life. And then most of the times people would say, oh, you know, I'm boring. There's nothing much to say. But it ended up being these really beautiful montages almost of people's lives. So like we're all characters. We all have stories. We all have things. But with regards to your comments, yeah, it is the fun part for me being a composer. And I think Terrence would probably agree as well, is that once you write the piece, you have your idea of things because you write it all on the paper. But then you leave room for the performer to interpret it. And that's the that's the fun part for me is to see what they do with it. And and most often, nine times out of 10, it sounds way better than I could have ever imagined. Another collaborator that I want to pull into the mix. Now, this is the person who wrote the uh, libretto for Fire Shut Up in My Bones. It's Casey Lemons. And she actually first worked with Terrence on a couple of movies, a couple of movies that were very poetic that uh, she directed. One of them's Eve's Bayou and another one is Harriet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that's not their first time collaborating together. The, the, the libretto to Fire Shove in My Bones is beautiful. It's so beautiful. And the music paired with it, it's, it's the perfect pairing. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say about it. It's just beautiful. Of course, it's the story, it's, uh, Charles Blow's memoir, and it's his growing up in a very conflicted and traumatic kind of setting. So you had a lot of participation by the principal singers who came in, and they really informed how these lines came across. It became a really collaborative production. Yeah, that's the only way opera works. You, ha you have to be collaborative. You can't be afraid to share things that do and don't work for your voice and it's sort of an ongoing process um there are different iterations that come around and you know the your job as a composer is to give the performers something that will enable them to do the best job that they can do and so if they have feedback that's going to help them do their job better then it's it's good to listen to that i know that some composers don't do that but um that's the way i like to operate and i think terrence does too now, one of the things that's interesting about Fire Shut Up in My Bones is that there's a dance sequence right in the middle of the opera. It's nonverbal, it's movement, it's music, and it reminded me of classic French opera, which would almost always include a ballet in the second act. Absolutely. Um, you know, Terence likes opera you know he his i believe his father was a great fan of puccini and, and things like this so it is very classic in that way i mean fire shut up in my bones is really quite a special piece because i think it shows the possibilities of what opera is i was i was going to say could be but it already exists so what opera is what it could be i think also and also what it has been like he definitely leans on some of the traditions of the past while being very innovative and creative and creating new works as well. Now, Camille A. Brown is the choreographer for the uh, Fire Shut Up In My Bones dance sequence. She also worked on Champion. 
Yeah, Camille is great. I think most people know Camille if you're a musical theater person who's sort of steeped into that world. But, I, you know, she's crossed over into the operatic world. I worked with her, actually, when I was at the Mets singing in Porgy and Bess. And it was it was a quite phenomenal thing to see how she shifted the atmosphere of that place and got everybody sort of on one accord to do the thing that we needed to do, which was create a black space, basically, is what it was. And so I think that she elevated that production by a lot. And I think that uh, if you ask Terrence, he would probably say that she took it to another level. Because, I mean, dance, I don't know anything about dance, but I know that if a choreographer has a piece of music and then you add choreography to it, it's going to elevate that music to another level, for sure. And in the case of Fire Showed Up in My Bones, we're seeing a particular tradition of dance that takes place at a historically black college. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about the step show? Yes. Yeah, that was really cool. Because uh, opening night, after the step show, everybody stood up <laughs> and gave them a standing ovation. Because <laughs> people have, I mean, if I'm just going to be frank, if you're white, you probably haven't seen a step show before. Uh, I shouldn't make that generalization. But I think if you're Black, you probably have. <laughs> and so to see it on an operatic stage like that, on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera, such a defining piece of Black culture, I think I was moved to tears, actually. You're listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Concer. And today we're talking about opera and jazz. Our guests are Terrence Blanchard, jazz legend and composer for dozens of film scores, as well as two operas, Champion and Fire Shut Up in My Bones, and composer, conductor, and interim music director of Portland Opera, Damien Jeter. Let's play another clip from Absence, music composed by one of our guests today, Terrence Blanchard. joined now by Terrence Blanchard, and we've been talking about the innovative choreography for the opera's Champion and Fire Shut Up in My Bones by Camille A. Brown. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, it was just incredible, you know, because I think what she's doing with dance is what I've been trying to do with music. She respects the, the history of it, you know, but she's not bound to it. You know, she understands what street dance is, modern dance, and she brings all of those things to bear in a way that's kind of seamless but creates her own unique style, you know? And I love watching what she comes up with, 
you know, when we did Fire, which is the first time we worked together, I was just totally blown away. But man, when it came time to do Champion, I was excited. I'm like, well, let me see what you got. What are you going to do? You know, and man, when they started doing the, the parade sequence, I I was in tears, dude, you know, because I think she's phenomenal. I think she's brilliant. Now, Terrence, I want to ask you about Spike Lee, the prolific film director. Here's another person from a musical family. His father, Bill Lee, is a longtime bassist and composer. Oh, man, listen, that's if it wasn't for Spike, none of this would be happening. None of it. You know, he took a chance on me you know, uh, writing music for his film just because he heard something that I played on the piano and he dug it and then asked me if I could write a string arrangement for it. That's how all of it started, you know. Um, And I I really love Spike because Spike understands that in our community, there's not a lack of talent. There's just just a lack of opportunity, you know. And if he can, he tries to give people opportunities. You know, and he gave me a chance and we we've had a very long, fruitful working relationship, you know, and I'm proud to say that I can see in those films us growing together as artists, you know, Um, and it's been amazing because with doing A Tale of God's Will, that's what got Opera Theater St. Louis interested in me writing an opera, you know, and uh, one thing just led to the next. And he's also extremely, man, people don't understand Spike. That's why I'm the way that I am about all of these other composers need to be successful. Spike, well, he is my biggest advocate, you know, anywhere. Uh, When it came to the Academy, when it came to the BAFTAs in London, Spike is the one wanting to do the interviews to try to champion my thing. You know, when we were at the BAFTAs in London and Rami Malek won Best Actor, you would have thought Spike won because he jumped up and he was so he was so happy to see it happen. You know, he's a very special dude, man. You know, and my I always have to give all of the credit to him because, you know, I did Jungle Fever. But when it came time to do Malcolm X, he could have went and got the Hollywood guy to score that film because it was a big budget film. No, but he stuck with me and gave me a shot. And it's one of the things that I tell my students, because somebody trusts you that that way i bend over backwards try to make sure that i do everything the right way i cross every t twice dot every i twice and make sure that things are up to par and i've done that with every project that we've worked on because he trusted me so much and i never want to let him down so was it do the right thing where you first performed music for a spike lee film uh jungle fever came around and that was where spike ask you to just compose the score yeah because actually it was more better blues i had written something for one of my albums he heard it and then we used it in more better blues it's a sequence where denzel's on the bridge playing and then spike asked me if i could write an arrangement for it for the orchestra and of course i lied and said yes you know (laughs) but i went back and i called my composition teacher roger dickinson man and i was just talking about this man at, at at a commencement speech that i had to give at rutgers you know, I was telling them, I said, listen, man, I called this guy and I'm looking for answers because I'm looking for concrete answers. And you know what he told me? He told me, trust your training, you know, which means you already have it in you. You know, you have to find it and you have to do the work. You know, it's like, you know, they used to tell me all the time, 
The Bible says, seek and ye shall find. It doesn't say ye shall find. It says, seek and ye shall find. So do the work, you know, do the work. So that along with your talent should provide you with fruitful experiences. You were barely 20 years old when you joined the Lionel Hampton Orchestra. What kind of things did you learn from the old heads of jazz, folks like the legendary Art Blakey? You know, the main thing that I learned from them is something that I live my life by now, man. It's like when it comes to your audience, don't try to play above them. Don't try to play beneath them. Just play straight to them. Don't do the thing that you think they want to hear, you know, and don't bring something to them that's so complicated. Nobody can understand because you want to look like somebody that's really deep and intellectually above everybody else. No, none of that makes any sense. The most important thing to do is to go straight at them, you know, and tell stories. So that's what I try to do. Even with the opera, I'm not trying to write the most advanced, hey, the hippest opera known to man. No, I'm trying to tell a story. I'm allowing the story to help me unravel what the music is. You know, many years ago, you said to Downbeat Magazine, writing for film is fun, but nothing can beat being a jazz musician, playing a club, playing a concert. Do you still get opportunities to play a session at a jazz club? Oh man, I'm playing. I'm playing all the time. You know, I have my band, which you which you'll see in Portland. Then I'm also touring with Herbie Hancock as well. So, you know, I, I love performing. That's it for me. You know, it's it's it doesn't get any better than that. You know, I wish I could sing, which I can't. <laughs> now you got ideas that come along when you're riffing. You know, like uh, in a club with with your collaborators there. I mean, sometimes definitely the ideas that come to mind, you know, but for me, it's about enjoying the experience right then. Because when you play with great guys that are like the guys in my band, which you'll hear in Portland, those guys are inspiring, man. Charles, Altura on guitar is an, is an amazing guitarist, man. You know, it's, I, I'm very blessed to have the guys in the band that I have right now because, you know, they're, they're amazing talents in their own right. And they're all band leaders. You know, they all have their own projects out. You know, we're just very fortunate to come together as a group and do something special. So now you're you're at the place where you're kind of giving back yourself. You had Art Blakey, you had Hamp, you had all those people that were influencing you. And now you're giving back. You're highly regarded in academia. UCLA named you to its endowed chair in jazz studies where you've been since 2019. Uh, before that, you were artistic director of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz, a visiting scholar in jazz composition at the Berklee College of Music. So how is that for you, passing this along? Like, in uh, It seems like a much more formal way than the way you came up in the jazz world. Well, it's just what's happening now. You know, it's jazz wasn't in the schools back when I was growing up. And now it's a major part of the educational process. You know, so for me... It's literally about taking my experiences and, and sharing them with these students. You know, Charlie Parker said, listen, man, it ain't magic. It just seems like it is, you know. So the thing that I try to do is to show them how the sausage is made and give them the tools to create their own. You know, um, like I said earlier, you know, there's no lack of talent or ideas out there. That's not the issue. I studied with a great composer named Hale Smith, man, and Hale Smith, you know, one of my first lessons, Hale Smith told me, he says, it sounds like you can try to control this vast amount of space, 
without having the ability to control a small amount of space. And once he said that to me, man, it clicked. And <clears throat> that's what I try to teach my students. Let me show you how to take this kernel of an idea and re really manipulate that and make it into something bigger, you know? And it's been really a successful thing that I've experienced at the collegiate level. Like I said, because the students come there motivated, you know, I, I mean, I find it so interesting that in our country, we don't celebrate, you know, education the way we should, because there's a lot of kids out there that are yearning to learn, you know, they'll do whatever it takes to get better, but we don't really celebrate them. We always talk about the negative and what kids are not doing. But we need to turn that around because there's some kids out there, man, that are putting in the work and doing great things. I agree. And and when I get to work with youth, it's like I always leave so inspired because I'm thinking, well, if this is the future of the country, then I'm then we're going to be all right. Because as you said, Terrence, they are so eager and curious and wanting to know more and so smart already. I'm like, y'all are this smart already? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> He's like, hey, Dave, you know what I tell my students? I say, listen, man, if you ever come to one of my gigs or listen to one of my records and I play something that sounds like something you wrote, it's totally a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> man, because I have students, they write some stuff and I go, hey, wait, wait a minute. How did you come up with that? You know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> some stuff you look at, I'm like, wow, that's way better than anything I could have ever written. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> You've been listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Concer, and we've been talking today with Terrence Blanchard, jazz legend and multiple award-winning composer for two operas and dozens of film scores. His current project, in collaboration with the E-Collective Band and the Turtle Island Quartet, is called Absence. Terrence, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Hey, man. Thank you for having me. It's been really great. It's been a lot of fun. And we've also been joined by conductor and composer Damian Jeter. He's currently serving as interim music director and artistic advisor for Portland Opera. Damian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And if our listeners would like to find out more about Absence, where would they look? Well, it's on a Blue Note label, so you can find it on Blue Note. And it's advertised on my website as well, terrenceblanchard.com. And for the uh, Portland Opera version of Absence. You can see the concert Friday at 8 o'clock and get tickets at portlandopera.org. Well, we hope that everybody has been enjoying our special programming for KBOO's Spring Membership Drive. Before we go, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that this community radio station needs your support. To become a member of KBOO or to arrange for a donation of any size, please visit kboo.fm slash give. You can also text KBOO to 44321. Or if you prefer, you can mail a contribution to the station at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland, 97214. Again, the webpage is kboo.fm slash give. On your mobile device, you can text kboo to 44321. And of course, you can reach us by mail at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland, 97214. Thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. You can find an archived version of this show later today at kboo.fm slash words and pictures. And be sure to follow us on social media at words and picture. <laughs>